Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today was a special episode for a bunch of reasons. One I'll let Sarah talk about in a second, but also because this is a really personal episode. It's in our income inequality arc, and the working title is Why Aren't Black Kids Playing Baseball? And this is dedicated to my husband, who will die if he ever listens to this. But he gave us this idea for this topic. Make sure his colleagues don't tell him then, because he's going (laughs) to find out. And I think we've got some super fans in the house. Okay. First of all, let's take a second to celebrate this. Listeners, we are 50 episodes into this podcast. Episode 5-0. Woo! We want to thank you all, our listeners, for helping us get to this point. Your comments, your emails, your social media interaction. We read and listen to them all. We really appreciate it. We want to say thank you for your support. And thank you in advance for sharing this with a few of your... You should share it with 50 people. No, I'm kidding. But a few (laughs) of your closest friends that you want to have uncomfortable conversations with or who benefit. I mean, we have been astounded and really honored. We have school districts saying that they're using us in their equity work. Like we are really grateful and we love your support. And the best way to show that is subscribe and tell people about us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the number five zero. Yes. Thank you. And nothing says episode 50 like kids sports. (laughs) (laughs) But truly, it's not just about kids sports. This episode, oh my gosh, fascinating. I'm so excited to have this conversation because we've had it on our docket for a long time. And to be able to talk about it and how it's relevant to anybody out there in this country who likes sports of any kind is really cool. I almost made a I don't watch sports comment, but I was like, that's not the appropriate time to say that. Okay, Sarah, you have your knowledge, extensive knowledge of farm animals, and I have sports. <laughs> Did anybody hear about our goats? And also, I rode horses this weekend, which I never do, so. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's okay. This is why we're friends, because I will share all of my time on various fields with Sarah, and she can share her farm animal interactions with me. There's no way to say that without cracking up. I've tried. Like, in my head, I tried. Uh, I mean, when we met 20-plus years ago, walking out of the Half Asian People's Association meeting, I didn't think we'd have a podcast. And then now I never thought we'd be talking about, like, farm animals either. (laughs) Okay, now you and goats are forever like linked in my mind. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so we are recording this in mid-February, although this is going to be coming out probably in mid-March. So the time frame is relevant because if you're a baseball fan, you know that pitchers and catchers reported to spring training right around this time. If you're an NBA fan, as I am, this coincides nicely with the All-Star break. Yes, I know this will, you'll probably hear this a month later, but if you did not watch the NBA All-Star game, you need to stop everything that you're doing. I mean, stop it right now and watch the fourth quarter. Do I have to? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not recording the rest of this episode. Which is perhaps, yeah, stop. Sarah, just take off those headphones. Perhaps the best quarter of basketball that I've ever watched, and I've watched a lot of basketball. And then do yourself a favor and go to YouTube and watch Common's introduction to the city of Chicago and Jennifer Hudson's tribute to Kobe. But prepare yourself with a little bit of Kleenex, though. Yeah, because that Kobe tribute was so good. Anyway. If you're an NFL fan, you know that the season ended just a couple of weeks ago with the Chiefs taking home their first Super Bowl win in 50 years. And at this point, I'm seriously actually still shaking my head being like, what is the point of all of this conversation? I know. Besides just the highlights of February 2020, we watch and follow a lot of sports in the United States. And I'm not even talking about ones that we also watch a lot of. I mentioned three, but we also watch and play hockey, soccer, tennis, swimming, and basically any other pastime that can be found on YouTube. Perhaps you played sports growing up. Perhaps your kids are playing sports now. That's very personal to me. And yes. Yes, your kids, you are always on a sporting field of some sort with your children. But in all of that, have you stopped to think about the racial makeup of the athletes that we watch on TV and in what sports? And then if you stop to think about that, have you taken a look as to why that might be the case besides just simple demographics, if it's even that simple? So if the answer to any of those questions are no, or you have to think about whether that's a no or not, then that's why you have us. So one of the biggest reasons why this is the case as to why there is this disparity in sports is income inequality. You knew it would come back to that arc, right? So let's break it down. 
As we just mentioned, youth sports in the United States have long been considered an important part of growing up. Kids sports is a nearly $17 billion industry, which may, I couldn't even, I was like, control the eye roll, Misasha, control it, bring your eyes back down, which makes it larger than the business of professional baseball and approximately the same size industry as the NFL. Like, honestly, what? Honestly, come on. That was, sh- that's shocking. I can't even. All right. $17 billion. Yeah. However, the share of children ages 6 to 12 who play a team sport on a regular basis has declined from 41.5% in 2011 to 37% in 2017, according to a recent report from the Aspen Institute. Going back to 2008, participation is lower across categories, including baseball, basketball, flag football, and soccer, in some cases by a lot. Baseball is down about 20%. Which is crazy. I remember everyone played like little league and your team sport like all that sort of stuff growing up so that's down 20 percent i know it's a lot so why as cbs news reported the rising costs of playing sports coupled with rising economic inequality is increasingly leading poor and even middle class families to hang up their cleats that trend is being fueled by the growth in pay-to-play sports which is making organized athletics prohibitively expensive for many households Participation in sports among families earning less than $75,000 has dropped since 2011, according to the Aspen Institute's Project Play. By contrast, children from better-off families are participating in even greater numbers. And I think this goes back to our previous episode about income inequality, which if you haven't listened to, you should, after you've watched the fourth quarter of the All-Star Game, you should listen to that one because it talks about the disparity between the ultra wealthy and sort of everyone else or wealthy even and everyone else in terms of experience and attitude. About seven of 10 children from families that earn more than $100,000 play sports compared with three in 10 from families earning less than $25,000 at the Aspen Institute found in a 2018 report. And what was even more astounding in some ways is the typical American family spends about $700 per year on their child's sports activities, but some parents shell out as much as $35,000 annually to pay for lessons, camps, school sports fees, equipment, travel, and more, according to Project Play. Even public schools are increasingly charging for sports due to budget cuts, data from the Rand Corporation shows. Families earning $50,000 or less, or middle or lower income households, site cost is the top reasons their kids don't participate in organized sports, the Rand study notes. We have a system that is based on the concept of up or out, like we have in a lot of corporate America, except it's not merit-based, said Tom Ferry, who is the executive director of the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. It is disproportionately based on whether you come from a family with money or if you are that child who is simply an early bloomer. Wow, right? So we're applying this whole capitalistic mindset to kids' sports now. Yes, in a staggeringly $35,000. What? But I was thinking about little league fees around here. I mean, little league is, you know, $300 per kid, close to that at least. And that's for what? How many weeks of play? I mean, eight. And but each kid in my kids league needs their own batting helmet which my husband was like, I'm pretty sure we had like just a couple batting helmets there. But kids show up. I mean, I watched young kids show up with batting gloves, with their own bats, with their bat bags, you know, and that's little league. Like you literally, you know, you're out there and soccer, which conceivably you just need a ball and a goal. I mean, the amount of money that is goes into that in this area is, is astounding because AYSO fees are also about $300 per kid. Wow. I mean, yeah, I guess. And then you think about total side note, but comparing that to like a week of summer camp or, you know, just things that people have to pay for in order to be able to work. Yeah. You know, that's on top of all that sort of stuff. So, okay. That's a huge shift within a single generation. In earlier decades, children played in local team sports and you rarely traveled outside their local area for games. But according to Ferry, that has changed partly due to the pressure from college-minded families to help their children earn athletic scholarships and admission to elite colleges. So to make sure that their children stand out, they're opening up their wallets for lessons, camps, expensive club teams that traveled for tournaments, and more. He basically said this, quote, youth sports has been transformed by the chase for the athletic scholarship and the preferential admission to highly selective colleges. A recruited athlete has a greater advantage than a legacy or a minority or any other population. Wow. Wow. Right. And we'll obviously be talking about the college admissions scandal in a second, but... (laughs) 
expensive travel leagues and if you see this you know like they're really expensive they siphon off talented young athletes from well-off families but what happens in that grouping then it leaves behind desiccated local leagues with fewer players fewer involved parents and fewer resources he said when these kids move to the travel team you pull bodies out of the local town's recreation league and it sends a message to those who didn't get on that track that they really don't have a future in the sport and so the result is a classist system the travel team talents and the local leftovers. As you can imagine, unsurprisingly, the leftovers often lose interest. As Chris Moore, who is the executive officer of the U.S. Youth Soccer Association, he told the New York Times, quote, if you can't make a travel team, some kids may say, what's the point, and quit playing altogether. So in short, this American system of youth sports, which serves the talented and often rich individual at the expense of the collective, has taken a metal bat to the values of participation and universal development. Youth sports has become a pay-to-play game. And I think this makes both of us really mad. Yeah. It's really obvious when you think about, when I mentioned it before, but the change in this environment for youth sports was on full display with the college admission scandal that sort of tarnished the reputation of actresses Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, as well as dozens of other parents. I mean, some parents literally spent millions of dollars to bribe college athletics officials who then offered their children a spot on a college team, securing them admissions to Yale and other prestigious schools. And in some cases, the students didn't even play the sport. I know those faked photos of like, can't remember if it was rowing or what it was, but crew, but yeah. I mean, we talked about the admission scandal. Remember the BC's episode on that sort of stuff? Like, imagine the relationship harm that those parents did if the kids didn't know that this was happening behind the scenes too. But it really, really, you know, illuminates this problem, this crisis that's happening right now, because there is so much money getting funneled into the youth sports and people, you know, I mean, we'll get into it in a little bit about like, what does it do for the kids who aren't active then because they can't afford to pay and then it's kind of a dud team that they're left on. Anyway, yeah, it's a very widening, very tangible gap for this next generation. Yeah. Well, and I mean, a lot of parents are putting money into kids sports, believing that the end goal is getting that college scholarship, right? One in five parents with a kid in sports believes that that will lead to a college athletic scholarship, which is almost certainly just wishful thinking because only one in 10 young people who play sports ever get a sports scholarship, according to a recent TD Ameritrade study. And I was just at a talk where a guy was talking about this very specific issue. And I think the number he gave was about 3%, which is really low, right? And I mean, I think, you know, with that one in 10 number who plays sports will get a sports scholarship. It doesn't say in what sport or, you know, and what will that scholarship cover? Because a lot of times it's not a full ride. You know, you might get a year or part of that time period. And then on the flip side, you also need to think about if you get in off a sports scholarship or you're playing a D1 sport or something like that, you are in there for like 30 additional hours doing that sport a week. So you got to love it. And a lot of what you know we're seeing here in the income inequality section is you're pushing and pushing for kids to do something. And if you don't love it, then there's like the flip side of that too. Yeah, let alone the physical damage that can happen, too, from just concentrating on one sport from the time you're little. But yeah. So, I mean, when you're looking at youth sports, it's basically if you're wealthy, you take your kids out of the local gyms, you put them on a traveling team and that's it. Right. You know, many of the parents are not doing it with the intention to harm anyone since they're just trying to help their child, says Ferry. But they don't think about the kids they're leaving behind. They're not thinking about what makes sense for the whole community. And again, if you're a well-meaning parent, right, and you're thinking about how you're going to get your kid to college, too, especially when college costs like so much money now. An arm and a leg, yeah. Right. How do you dedicate your time and your money? And parents are looking at sports as a way to get their kids from point A, which is everything, to point B, which is college. In the 1990s, Division One and Division Two colleges distributed about $250 million a year in full and partial scholarships to student athletes. And today that figure has grown to more than $3 billion. Wow. 
right? So the scholarship jackpot gives some children from lower income families a chance to attend schools that they might not otherwise afford. But it also sends a very clear message to wealthier parents who are looking to give their kids application that, you know, additional edge. Sports matter. As soon as some children enter second or third grade, their parents scramble to place them on youth travel teams, which will set them up for middle school travel teams, which will set them up for high school academic excellence, which will make them more competitive for admissions and scholarships at select colleges. And I mean, I see that here in this area. And it is striking that there is this huge focus on kids in elementary school with the end goal being college, which is, you know, 10 plus years down the road. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's the long game, but it's important to take a quick look back and be like, is this system broken? And it really sounds like it is. Yeah. When you have that kind of system, right, back to Ferry again, he says parents start spending a lot of money. You know, that's when you get them on the right club teams, you hire private trainers, you do whatever it takes, buying them that $300 special bat to have them succeed at sports. And I have seen that. I'm literally raising my eyebrows at you through the computer like, what? Yeah. Your kids are little. $300 bats? Yeah, I've seen that, which was just like mind blown. But, you know, anyway. He added, it effectively pushes aside a lot of kids on the lower end of the income distribution. I mean, obviously, because $300 bats is, yeah. And it's really interesting and I think important to say that we all want what's best for our kids. Yeah. So I get that, right? I get the parental urge to, well, I have the means, I should absolutely use that to support my family. Agreed. And I think what we've always been saying is that's great and we need to just like take the blinders off and look at the big picture because none of us are in this system alone and we all, like anything we do ripples out and affects the rest of the people around us. And the very same kids who are on the lower end of this income distribution who can't play that sport are still going to be adults in the working place Mm -hmm. with our children fast forward you know another couple of decades these are all our peers like we're raising all that group of children all together yeah so i think it's really important especially as parents thinking about what we want for our kids we have to think about them as all of our kids as much as possible yeah i mean you know back in our day it was public schools. some public schools are even adding pay to play fees because we have shrinking and stagnant sports budgets in the public school system and in some cases it's due to caps on property taxes It's making it tougher to find resources for schools or financial struggles. We'll dive here into a pattern in Ohio where families in one school district might have to pay up to $1,000 to enroll their kids in sports, while a family in a nearby district may pay nothing. And this is according to the Dayton Daily News. Some schools charge sports fees because it helps them avoid making cuts. Others pare back the charges in order to increase sports participation, the, the paper noted. But meanwhile, poor students faced a whole other host of issues that wealthier kids don't, and that can also deter them from playing sports. And this is from Mara Maza in the Kings County Tennis League, which is a nonprofit that teaches tennis to low-income children in Brooklyn. Some of it, she said, there's a variety of reasons why kids don't participate in sports, but some of it is access, some of it is transportation, and some of it is just safety. They have to get there and be safe when they're playing these sports. So the bigger picture, which is according to, going back to the Aspen Institute's ferry, middle class and poor children who can't afford to play sports may be at a distinct disadvantage compared with kids from more affluent families. I mean, he said the research shows physically active kids are less likely to be obese, more likely to get a college degree, less likely to suffer chronic illnesses, including cancer, and more likely to be active as adults and twice as likely to have active children. So going back to that point I was making before, like everyone is going to pay a price if we don't get lower income children off the couch and into sports right now. Yeah. And that talk that I was talking about earlier, he had said one statistic, which is basically when you have a kid who's sort of pushed out of sports before the age of 12, right, for whatever reason, they're not doing the travel team. They had a coach who, you know, was benched them or told them they weren't good or whatever. That kid is unlikely to get back into sports. And so you have a kid who's not even really in middle school yet, who's turned off from the whole concept of athletics. And think about what that does for a generation, right? You just multiply this out. 
exponentially, basically. Right. Well, and then there's so many problems. I mean, I think going back to the very basics, human beings, especially children, need about an hour of physical activity a day. Like we were made to not sit at computers and desks all day long. We are made to be active. And that's how our brain is wired. So both physically and mentally, getting children moving is important. And so many schools have already cut recess, Let right? So like, it's not just academic or sorry, extracurricular sports. It's like even that time at school, they don't have to be active. And going back to the ripple effect of that, if then you have that one kid you were talking about who doesn't have sports, like he sort of gets left from that realm and then doesn't ever want to pick up being active. I'm not saying that anybody who's not active is a detriment, right, or weighing on it. But if they become obese, there's a, you know, a strain on the medical system. If they have depression, there are things that happen when you experience depression and you can pull the people down around you. Like there's a lot of ripple effects into society's marginal safety net out there that it will weigh on if kids are not taught that being active is healthy and fun. Preach. I fully believe that. (laughs) So, you know, we at the Dear White Women podcast like to consider all the different arguments here and the predictable sort of comeback to what we've been discussing. And as the Atlantic pointed out, is this the system works just fine. That's what people you know, we'll say, for example, many famous athletes have come from poor backgrounds and some of them owe their careers to specialized super teams. Besides, you know, one could argue even though super teams for gifted and sufficiently wealthy young people might leave disadvantaged kids behind, this is simply the price that society must pay for excellence. It's a version of a familiar conservative economic argument about the general economy. And this sounds a lot like our last episode. The U.S. has the world's smartest people because we celebrate success and punish laziness. So we should cut taxes on the rich and unwind these collectivist welfare programs, which only dampen the nation's competitive mojo. Like basically, you know, we work hard and those who don't work hard are sort of penalized under this system. But those who work hard succeed in theory. In theory. Right. But again, oh, what we just talked about. It doesn't take into account anything about the background of why people have different levels of income to begin with. Right. But, and I am laughing just because Norway, man. But just as Europe offers alternative models for balancing equality and efficiency in the overall economy, it also offers alternative models for youth sports. For example, and like after this, I'm just getting our family and we're moving to Norway. I'm just kidding. But No, like literally, I was just chatting with someone when I was away this weekend, and he's from Denmark, but they said in sort of that area, you can live in whatever one of those countries you want to. And he and his American wife, with a second child on the way, are moving to Norway. And I'm like, that's amazing. I mean, that's just, it's one of the happiest countries in the world. It's true, but I feel like we would stand out a lot in Norway, a lot. Like, if you think about Oprah, when Oprah went to Scandinavia, like, she, I mean, Oprah in Copenhagen was Oprah in Copenhagen, but... Oprah is Oprah anywhere, though. I know, but Oprah didn't look like anyone else in Copenhagen. Oh, did I tell you I'm going to go watch Oprah at the thing when she comes to Denver, by the way? (laughs) It's coming up soon. Okay. Okay, sorry. Let's get back to Norway. (laughs) Okay, so, for example, Norway's youth sports policies are deliberately egalitarian. The National Lottery, which is run by a government-owned company called Norse Tipping, spends most of its profit on national sports and funnels hundreds of millions of dollars to youth athletic clubs every year. Parents don't need to shell out thousands to make sure their kids get to play. And play is an operative word. Norwegian leagues value participation over competition so much that clubs with athletes below the age of 13 cannot even publish game scores. Remarkably, teams that release their scores online can face expulsion from the Norwegian Confederation of sports, which is amazing. And as a side note, this is what we were supposed to be doing. And by we, I mean, not we, but our kids were supposed to be doing an AYSO, which is the national soccer organization. You're not supposed to keep score if you're younger than a certain age, except all the kids kept score in their heads and would repeatedly tell us that after every game. But there is something to be said for not publishing game scores and just as a nation being like, this isn't where we place value, especially if it equalizes out opportunity and playing time to other kids. So it might seem like any country's athletic prowess would, you know, just sort of wither and die under such socialist and anti-competitive policies. I know you say that with tongue in cheek words, right? Yes. 
Okay. However, Norway is like, you know, an athletic beast. In the last Winter Olympics, the country won 39 medals, the most of any country in the history of the Games, and nearly twice as many as the United States. I would like to point out that is the Winter Olympics, though. But still, amazing. It did so with a smaller population than the state of Minnesota. It it is pretty incredible. So it kind of debunks that idea that, like, oh, these people, like, you need to have this model in order for us to be the best, basically. Right. Or, like, you have to be competitive at an early age to create athletes who are true standouts, right? Because clearly there's a whole bunch of Norwegian athletes who are true standouts. Absolutely. And I take back what I said about Oprah. You're right. I mean, I didn't see that particular episode, but it's not just because she's Oprah. I get it. I get it. But Sarah, drop everything and go watch Oprah in Sweden. Okay. Okay, finish up the episode. No, I'm kidding. The U.S. sees itself as a land of winners, bred by a culture of fierce competition that rewards success. Right? Is that what you all think, too? I mean, but in youth sports, that competition doesn't happen, excuse the metaphor, on a level playing field. And one way to address the class-related participation problem in youth sports is to tone down the competition that leads wealthy parents to pay for elite traveling leagues and unintentionally degrade the local leagues. In other words, follow the Norwegian model. Now, we had a thought about the U.S. hockey stuff that we're about to dive into here because my husband is Canadian. I thought you would be fitting for the hockey section. Section, yes. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, for example, then, look at U.S. youth ice hockey, where participation has actually grown to an all-time record, according to the Sports and Fitness Industry Association. Among several possible factors, the NHL expanded recently into southern and western states, and the youth hockey organization banned body checking among players under 12. USA Hockey also recently eliminated national championships at the peewee level, which is under 12, uh, to discourage parents from building super teams. And I will come back to this in a second, but one other asterisk is that the mainstream sports channels in the U.S. a few years ago started actually showing most of the games. Until that point, it was like really exclusively on the NHL network, I think. But CBS Sports and MSNBC and all those guys started actually airing more and better commentary on the main sports channels. And I think that's what my husband, the Canadian who was an avid hockey player, was saying has made a big difference to excite interest in younger kids. But going back to that super teams, Ken Martell, who is the technical director of development and USA Hockey, said that we felt it would be hypocritical for our sports to offer up an event that encourages people in the field to start putting together super teams at an early age. And apparently at first, mothers and fathers complained, but once it was eliminated, it was just crickets. People like it. In other words, hockey parents thought they needed to win but they were happy enough for their kids to just play. I think that's such an important point, too, that when you shift the emphasis and you just remove it, then suddenly that natural shift happens, too. Yeah. Well, and I think overall, if you look at the epidemic of the rise of anxiety in this country, I don't think, I mean, yes, cell phones and smartphones and lack of connection have a lot to do with it. But if you think about the pressure that we are putting kids under in sports, you know, to take that off and allow children whose brains are still developing to just experience pleasure and joy and learn things that way, as opposed to adding stress to this situation, I think can help longer term development and also engage kids enough to want to do it as opposed to burn out by the time they're in college or are in their 20s because it was this pressure filled experience. But I guess the point of it is, Other countries can do this better than we can. And income inequality means that poor kids are not getting the same access to the sports that rich kids are. But there's also something else that separates kids here that we have not addressed yet when it comes to rich and poor. And it was in the title of our episode. It's the color of your skin. Why aren't black kids playing baseball? All right. So we're going to digress for just a second. And when you think about the baseball stars that you grew up with, or when I do, I can name pretty much an equal amount of black men and white men that I looked up to because I fully collected baseball cards. Like I watched a lot of Dodgers games. And yeah, but I think of those heroes and the people, the superstars that I watched and focused on, it was really equally black and white. But now I have to think really hard to name like five black baseball players. 
And this is a recent shift. I mean, I'm in my 40s, so it's been over, what, like a 30-year period maybe, which is sort of in contrast to the sports history because baseball has had a large personality in the United States. It has influenced men, women, and children of all ages, even from a variety of different countries, and it's even influenced fashion. Like, for example, you know, the Yankees hats, snapbacks. I'll just stop here. (laughs) What are snapbacks? (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Okay. No, they're the snap, like... I'm holding my hands above my face like you can see it. But you know how the baseball hats, when you snap them on, you snap them closed, you snap them open. Oh, yeah. I thought that was just for like ponytails, but okay. Okay. Anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) so from Jackie Robinson to Willie Mays to Ken Griffey Jr., baseball has been armed with black players who have had larger than life personalities and stories that have captivated audiences. That facet of baseball life has been diminished over the years. So, I mean, there are big names in the game right now, like who are black, like Adam Jones, Jason Hayward, David Price, Mookie Betts. But there are many young athletes who aren't picking up the sport. So back when Colin Kaepernick took a knee in the NFL, Adam Jones spoke about this protest and how black players in the major leagues of baseball can't do the same thing. He said, quote, we already have two strikes against us already. And that's what he said to USA Today Sports. So you might not as well not kick yourself out of the game. In football, you can't kick them out. You need those players. But he continued, in baseball, they don't need us. Baseball is a white man's sport. In other words, if you're black, you're not speaking out in baseball. So USA Today Sports, you know, besides that quote from Adam Jones, also looked at the declining amount of black American MLB players in April 2016. And the results were really staggering. Despite making up around close to 14% of the U.S. population, Black Americans only made up 8% of the MLB. And I'm saying Black Americans, too, because if you look at Major League Baseball, sometimes you will see players that you are like, that's a darker skinned player. A lot of times those are not Black American players. Those are players from the Dominican Republic. Those are players from other countries that may look black. If you are looking at them, they are not going to culturally identify as black Americans. So there is a big difference. And that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about the cultural makeup of MLB as you do probably every day. Okay, so And if they're in the MLB, if black Americans are in the MLB, they're often outfielders, which are positions that are usually fielded by highly athletic players. Because if you think about the outfield in baseball, you've got to run like a fair distance backwards, forwards and side to side to catch those fly balls or those ground balls and field them in. There are under 10 well-known black pitchers and no black third basemen or catchers. So let's take that catcher's position for a second, because I'm going to mix my sports metaphors for a second, but the catcher is basically often called the quarterback of the baseball team because the catcher is the one who, when the pitcher is looking at the catcher, the catcher is the one doing the signals for what pitch that pitcher should be pitching, right? The catcher can also see when someone's trying to steal a base, you get the picture. Okay. But catcher's gear is very expensive. If a youth player wants to get a full set of new gear, it ranges from about $75 to $150, which apparently is not as much as a $300 bat. But if you're thinking about how fast you grow too, and you know, what sizes that you need to keep getting new pads and new, you know, face mask and all of that. And that's without that price is without the catcher's mitt and cleats. So oftentimes kids who start out at this position are forced to change because their family just can't afford that continuing cost. And this is the dilemma that many kids face on a regular basis while playing baseball, not just black children. The difference is that, you know, equipment in many places is provided for the young player. But like, for example, in Latin America, that is how we treat kids sports or how kids sports are treated is very different because children that are less fortunate are offered positions to play in academies that are run by major league teams. I mean, some might call them sort of feeders into the major league, but due to the amateur rules in America, many black children, but not all in the United States are not able to get that necessary equipment to play the position, you know, and this has changed over time because you used to show up and your park team would have the helmets and the bats and stuff. And so you just really needed to bring yourself. But 
now, as we've discussed, this has become heavily monetized. So like, you know, my kid in order to play needs his own batting helmet, which, you know, is expensive. And then he needs his own mitt and, you know, he needs his own bat and he needs if he's going to have batting gloves and then he needs a bag to put them all in, you know, the costs add up and he needs shoes. He needs cleats to wear. Although, you know, so America does have programs like the Boys and Girls Club, for example, which does help to sort of offset that barrier to entrance to recreational sports, but they don't have the same resources that these academies do. These recreational programs don't allow for players to live, eat, and breathe baseball like their Latin American counterparts. And, you know, as we've discussed, travel teams cost a lot of money, like even, you know, into the thousands of dollars. But let's also talk about when the sport of baseball is played. Baseball is played from February to October. So what do you do in that off season? If you're wealthier, you're practicing in the batting cages. You know, you've got an indoor mound. You're working on your craft still. You're still playing. But if you're poor and if you're a black child that's poor, for example, you know, even sometimes ones that are born into wealthier families, the resources just aren't there. There aren't as many batting cages in predominantly black areas. There aren't as many travel teams. And if there are, they're almost severely underfunded. So, well, and there was a study done by the Society of American Baseball Research by two individuals that contained the percentages of players by ethnicity from 1946 to 2016. So that's, you know, a 70 year span in baseball. What they found was interesting, to say the least. So the percentage of African-Americans in baseball grew steadily from Jackie Robinson's debut in 1947, because that was a big deal until the early 1970s, at which point it sort of plateaued around 16 to 19 percent for a quarter century. So from 1972 until 1996. Since then, it has plummeted to less than half that amount. So there are a lot of theories as to why this happened, you know, and one is that you basically have changes in positions. You have a lot more pitchers and a lot more kids who are specializing in being pitchers. And those aren't the black kids. But in sort of on the flip side, you do have black children who are going to other sports. They're playing basketball, football, more on that later. So we'll just put an asterisk in there for now. And now even soccer. These sports, for the most part, are much cheaper to play than baseball, unless you're clearly on a travel team. But in these three sports, you know, you just really need a ball and a goal. And a lot of times those can be played, especially basketball, in urban areas. You don't even need grass, right? You just need a court. And in the case of football, the sport is usually heavily funded by high schools that participate in the sport. In other words, you're not buying your own set of pads. So these sports also have black superstars that permeate the culture of the game. Okay, so remember the NBA All-Star Game, just saying fourth quarter, amazing. But it was a celebration, and especially this year, of black culture. And it always is, the NBA, led by superstars like LeBron James, Team Giannis, and a whole host of mostly black All-Stars. So LeBron, for example, is known around the world and in the United States because his talent is displayed and shared on a regular basis. Baseball doesn't do the same thing with any of their stars and is very, very regional in nature, only getting national coverage for a fraction of their games. And admittedly, baseball has like a million games in a season. It's some crazy high number, but you're not seeing that on TV. Just to your point about the NHL and, you know, getting viewers to watch that, you're only seeing very regional games and you're seeing the World Series maybe or some of the playoffs, but you're not seeing a lot of those games that happen on the regular. That's so true. I mean, all in all, many kids aren't playing baseball, but the sport is definitely declining at an unbelievable rate for black Americans. And it could be sort of addressed in a number of different ways. One is that costs have to be covered somehow. And it takes some funding by the government or other independent bodies, much like you just mentioned, football. Football is covered, right? And several articles that we looked at offered some solutions. For example, the Major League Baseball could take a look at investing in baseball fields at predominantly black high schools that have currently rugged fields. Um, and they should also look into providing gears to teams that don't necessarily have the money. Yeah, but in the end, it's the money, but it's more than the money. And I think this is a really important point. It's the culture, Right. If you think back to the black superstars that you're thinking of in your head in the MLB, there aren't really many in order to bring black interest into the game. Besides trying to even out the access, you need to feature players who are diverse. 
in other words, who aren't white. They need to shine just as bright as all of the white all-stars out there. The same could be said to be true about soccer. The Guardian had a great piece on how featuring a black soccer player, like if you remember the goalie, Tim Howard, from the U.S. World Cup championship team, that could bring soccer back to its all-star status because remember, embarrassingly, we did not qualify on the men's side for the World Cup this past year, which was an all-time low for the sport in the United States. And I definitely even remember Tim Howard. And you know how much that I don't follow sports, but I do remember that. And I know. So that is important that you remember this goalie and think about all those kids out there who are going to play soccer who can remember that goalie, but maybe were born slightly too young to remember Tim Howard. And now who are they looking at? So then I really want to talk about football because I don't like it as a general thing, but the sport that black kids are still playing, and it seems to go back to income inequality because guess who isn't playing football as much? That's right. It's the white wealthier kids who have options for college. According to a 2019 article from The Atlantic, kids in mostly white upper income communities in the Northeast, Midwest and the West, they're all leaving football for other sports like lacrosse or baseball. But black kids in lower income communities without a lot of other sports available are still flocking to football. And in keeping with America's general racial demographics, white boys continue to make up the majority of youth tackle football players, according to data from the Sports and Fitness Industry Association. But proportionally, the scales appear to be shifting because they did a recent survey of 50,000 8th, 10th and 12th grade students, and they found this about 44 percent of black boys play tackle football about 29% of white boys play tackle football. And that was from University of Michigan sociologist Philip Veliz. But football at the high school level is growing in popularity in states, or is growing in popularity in states with the highest share of black people, while it's declining in majority white states. And other recent studies suggest that more black adults support youth tackle football than white adults. And we know why. This is why I don't like it. But it's like, think about the physical impact of football. And I think you're going to get into that a little bit later. But the trend is particularly visible as majority white towns like Ridgefield, New Jersey and Heldsburg, California, (laughs) have dropped their varsity football programs because there's not interest. Right. Like, that's crazy that there's no varsity football in the majority white towns. But meanwhile, in Lee County, Georgia, which is a majority black area near where the coach recently started a new travel football team for kids to provide them with guidance and mentorship. So, again, it also shows up in the football that America watches today. Black athletes make up nearly half of all Division One college football players, which is up from 39 percent 20 years ago. White athletes make up 37 percent, which is down from 51 percent. These are trends. This is what is happening. Football is growing increasingly black. And so it really sheds some light into what the MLB player who was quoted saying, like, you need the black players in football. He can take a knee. Can't say anything if you're in the Major League Baseball realm. Thanks. Yeah. And so, I mean, what is the big deal about there being more black boys than white boys in tackle football? The divergence here paints a really troubling picture of how economic opportunity or a lack thereof governs which boys are incentivized to really, as you noted, like putting their body and their brain at risk to play this sport. Depending on where families live and what other options are available to them, they either see a game that is too violent to consider or one that is necessary and important, if risky. Millions of Americans still watch football. NFL ratings were up this season that a distinct portion of families won't let their children play creates a disturbing future for the country's most popular game. So with the news about permanent brain damage caused from CTE and head injuries on the rise, I think we now know, you know, looking at football players who have retired or football players who have been forced to retire because of the massive head trauma potential and permanent injury potential from football. Upper income boys have started decamping to sports such as golf or lacrosse, which are less available in poor communities, probably because you need a lot of gear to play those sports, right? And you need special places to play those sports. The kids are influenced by adults who have their own biases about the safety of football. Just 37% of white respondents told researchers that they would encourage kids to play the sport, while 57% of black respondents said they would according to a working paper by a sociologist from Skidmore College and a sociologist from the University of Nebraska. I mean, so you go from tackle football into flag football, and apparently now getting white kids just to play flag football can be a tough sell. Jim Schwantz, who's the mayor of Palatine, Illinois, and he's a former linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys and San Francisco 49ers, your neck of the woods. 
he tried to start a flag football league as an alternative for families in his area worried about concussions. And so it started strong in 2012, but basically interest fell each year in the mostly white suburbs where the league operated because parents saw the sport as a gateway to tackle football. And so he stopped the league in 2017. Amazing. I mean, and this is a former professional player. You'd think that the hype of somebody like that being able to coach your kid would be enough, but apparently not. And so, you know, the dangers associated with tackle football are becoming more and more evident. And despite that, the sport is still growing more lucrative. You know, if you think about the college level and universities, they can make money from football on ticket revenue, on broadcasting fees, licensing opportunities, and sponsorships through all the, you know, fancy bowls, right? Which is also ridiculous because, I mean, save for that bill that's sort of going through California, the athletes can't make money on all of that stuff that the universities can. So the universities are basically making money off the kids who are putting themselves at risk to play this game to get there. Exactly. And some of the biggest schools have doubled what they make from football over the past decade, which is according to Forbes magazine. Ready for this number? The football team at Texas A&M, which is one of the nation's top teams, brings in $148 million annually. That's ridiculous. And again, students don't get paid anything. Seeing the revenue opportunities, so many schools have expanded their football program and starting offering more scholarships. Since 1988, the NCAA has added 62 Division I schools that are eligible to offer full-ride football scholarships. And that represents about 3,000 more scholarships that are available. Wow. Right? And you contrast that to like 31 fewer schools offer NCAA Division I scholarships for men swimming and diving than in 1988. So like tons of growth in football, declining in pool swimming sports, right? So if the university started giving boys the same amount of scholarships in swimming, you'd probably see a bunch of poor kids jumping in the pool. And that's from Robert Turner, who's a professor at George Washington University, who played briefly in the NFL. So, I mean, that's amazing. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that money. Right. And I guess it's scary. Like, there's a good and a bad to capitalism. But I mean, you follow the money and these are where the trends are going. And I think that not only are you following the money, but you're following history. And that's even more disturbing point, because, you know, we love history. The divide on the football field and how that is looking racially makes it hard not to see how inequality in America is worsening health disparities and raising the specter of another much darker era of American history. If you recall, we've talked about this on other episodes. In the early part of the 20th century, Black Americans were prevented from buying homes in well-off neighborhoods by racially restrictive covenants, excluded from trade unions and the jobs they guaranteed, and paid less than their white counterparts. That segregation that resulted has long had health implications. And just, I mean, that's redlining. That was where that kicked off in terms of the official name there. But Yeah. And today, simply the fact of being Black can be hazardous to one's health because low-income Black boys are more likely than low-income white boys to live in neighborhoods with persistent poverty, violence, and trauma. In addition, these neighborhoods also have little access to healthy foods. So if you look at football in this context, despite the benefits that it can provide, it may also be worsening these health disparities. The medical care accessible to low-income families in poor neighborhoods may be helping to obscure the dangers of brain injuries. Low-income Black communities have less access to good medical services and information that would emphasize the downsides of playing football. And that's according to Harry Edwards, who's a civil rights activist and emeritus professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. Nobody advises them as to the long-term medical risks, he says. They are out of the loop. Black people who said they had followed news about concussions were less likely to encourage children to play football than others who hadn't been following the news, according to the earlier sociological study that we referenced. And I think that's really important as a parent, right? You want what's best for your kids and you always weigh their safety as part of it. When black boys from low-income families look for examples of men who have come from similar backgrounds and succeeded, they don't have as many positive role models outside of sports and music, and as we've made clear, specific sports. Black NFL players who came from poverty are featured in commercials selling products, sitting behind desks at halftime in tailored suits, and holding up trophies. They're in newspaper stories and TV specials in which they talk about growing up poor in the South, raised by a single mother, and making it big in the NFL. So John Hoberman, who's the author of Darwin's Athletes, How Sports Has Damaged Black America and Preserved the Myth of Race, states, the media serves up encouraging stories for black kids to consume. 
Low-income black boys do not see the hundreds of athletes suffering in silence as their brain deteriorates, who ache when they get out of bed every morning, who damage their body playing in high school or college, but who didn't even make it to the NFL. I mean, we talk a lot in the past about representation and how that matters in news media and in books and that sort of stuff for the kids. But I never even thought about how this representation and only glorifying, you know, black NFL players, for example, as a mainstream storyline without emphasizing other successful black men with like a whole variety of other things, you know, could really channel children into a sport that is really damaging and can be very damaging and dangerous to their health. Yeah. And this next section that I want to talk about is the key point why I have such an issue with football. While black boys are disproportionately getting channeled into a violent sport, white people are making the most money off of it. And this in particular is why I stopped watching football after 10 years of basically living fantasy football. I mean, fantasy football was like my absolute be all and end all because of this issue when you think about who's playing versus when you think about who's making the money. 70% of NFL players are black, but only 9.9% of managers in the league office are. The NFL was just 52% black in 1985. Only two people of color majority owners of NFL franchises, Shahid Khan, the Pakistani-American owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and Kim Pegula, a Korean-American businesswoman who's a partial owner of the Buffalo Bills. If you're going to avoid 21st century gladiator circumstances in terms of football, the teams have to look something like the demographic representation of this nation. And that is a quote from an individual who studies race and sports. Wow, that is actually I never, ever, ever thought about that. But the gladiators, mm-hmm. right, they had all the privileged people sitting around the side and watched the other guys pummeling themselves to death. And right, the more that we know that how harmful football can be and is, that's really frightening to think about it in that way, but really, really eye opening. Yeah. And that was another case in point of how you and I are different. You totally did live fantasy football forever. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are brackets? I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. But I love you anyway. So last year, the NFL expanded its Rooney rule, which was first implemented in 2003. And it seeks to diversify teams coaching and front office staff. And still, I mean, the gladiatorial overtones are hard to overlook. Players who want to get recruited by NFL teams must attend the NFL scouting combine, which is a week-long showcase in which they perform mental and physical tests. Their athletes' hand size, arm length, wingspan, all the physical attributes are measured during the event, and players are asked to stand naked, except for their workout shorts, so the team recruiters can see how they're built, according to this guy, Edwards, you mentioned before me, Sasha, but he also works as a consultant with the San Francisco 49ers. So the NFL and team executives, who are mostly white men, are evaluating the bodies of black players, deciding whether to make an investment or not. Does that sound like a really nasty period of time. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're framing it like this, because the combine and the athletic parts of the combine, you can see on TV. I mean, you're they're showing how fast you can run, how far you can jump. But when you break it down to its very base level, it sounds a lot like a really bad period in our history. Do you know if they do that for any other sports? I have never seen. I mean, I know they have workouts where you and coaches come and scout you, but I am not familiar with that existing in any other sport in the same way. Right, where there's a bunch of people staring at someone's body to assess whether they are fit. Okay. Yeah. Man, I mean, like you, I don't watch football as a general thing, except for the Super Bowl. But broadcast networks like are really, generally speaking, losing viewers like you or me. And yet the NFL ratings were up again in 2018. Americans still appear to have a growing fascination with the sport, even if a majority white segment of the population does not want their children to play it. And so without a reversal in economic fortunes for poor communities across the country, football could one day become a sport played almost exclusively like by black athletes while still enjoyed by everybody. Black athletes who already make up the majority of players in the most dangerous on-field positions would continue to suffer from long-term brain damage. Their lives would be cut short by dementia and all that stuff about CTE. And yet black boys would continue to be drawn to a sport that could make their life painful and short and everybody would just sit back and watch. It's not okay. And I know that we started this episode with the title, Why Aren't Black Kids Playing Baseball? But I think if you've listened to this whole episode, you know that it runs much deeper and more complex than just that. So what is the takeaway here? I think it's look at the teams that you watch when you watch professional sports. Look at the teams that you watch when you watch your kids play 
sports. Think about how that access to sports, to that sport, to sports in general would be different if you looked different and look for ways to help monetary or otherwise. It does not have to be about money. It could simply be just start talking to other people about it. You never know who you might reach. This trajectory of kids sports is taking sports away from the kids and they might not get that trajectory, those sports back, especially if they're poor or a minority. So let's do what we can to help fix that now before it's too late. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 